1 Corinthians chapter 8. This next section of 1 Corinthians runs from chapter 8, verse 1, to chapter 11, verse 1. And it may seem that the issue is somewhat unclear or that Paul is moving from issue to issue. As I've argued before, Paul uses the ABA structure here, that A uh, is the subject at hand, the issue, B is supporting material, and then in the second A, he returns back to the same issue, uh, oftentimes with some variations. In chapter 8, what we will look at today, Paul writes about eating food that is sacrificed to idols. And he does so in terms of conscience and the exercise of freedom. And he tells them that he would never do this if it would cause someone else to sin. Seemingly, he leaves it up to the Corinthians that they can make up their own minds in this particular matter. But by the time we get to the second A in chapter 10, Paul will expressly forbid them to eat meat that has been offered to idols, particularly eating in temples, pagan temples, in the presence of not only idols, but Paul refers to them as demons. The second half of chapter 10, up to verse number 1 of chapter 11, uh, Paul deals with the same food, but this food now not eaten in the temple, but actually sold in the marketplace and whether or not that should be eaten. Right in the middle, between 8 and 10, you have a chapter in which Paul defends his apostleship, his authority, with special emphasis on his freedom. And and you might have a a sense of how does this all tie together? Well, we need to ask ourselves, what was it that the Corinthians wrote to Paul? You know, what is it that they have argued in their letter that Paul must now write uh, this response to them? I believe that the basic issue is, in fact, eating sacrificial food at the cultic meals in pagan temples. As the Corinthians have said, it is our right to go to a pagan temple and eat there. Because in the ancient world, temples were the equivalent of our denies, basically. They were restaurants. They had all this meat left over from the sacrifices, and so they would have these meals and the Corinthians are saying, well, why can't we go to these things? As we'll see in a bit, they'll say, well, you know, idols are nothing, therefore we have a right to do this. In the ancient world, eating was a very important part of worship. In both the systems that God established, as well as in false or pagan worship. And it occurred to me when I was writing this that I needed perhaps to explain myself um, there's an assumption that I hold that colors much of my thinking. I believe, well, two things. First of all, if you have a counterfeit, there must be a genuine article. So if you have false worship, then there must be true worship. And secondly, I believe that the genuine always precedes the counterfeit. And I think a lot of people don't have that opinion. They, they see Christianity, they see Judaism in the Old Testament as derivative, that that is, they saw what their neighbors were doing, but that was pagan, so we'll do the same thing, but we'll sort of make it more Christian, or we'll make it more for God. No, the genuine article comes first, and then we have the counterfeit. So when it comes to the matter of food in worship, or sacrifice and worship, 
The genuine is that which God intended, which God instituted, and the counterfeit is an imitation of that with, obviously, significant changes. Some people say, no, 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 David, because, you know, Sinai, when Moses and, you know, they got all the rituals, that's, I mean, the Egyptians had their pagan worship by then. but, But think, you need to go back a little earlier, back to Abel, who knew that he was to sacrifice an animal to God. The genuine precedes the counterfeit. And just, by the way, parenthetically, what we find Moses getting from God at Sinai, God's people have been practicing all along. But that's a different issue. But what about true worship and eating? Well, there are three things I would mention. First of all, in Israel, in the passages that deal with sacrifices and with tithing, with offerings, eating is a significant part. And I just want to read two passages. First of all, in Deuteronomy 10, you must not worship the Lord your God in their way. That is the pagans surrounding them. But you are to seek the place the Lord your God will choose from among all your tribes to put his name there for his dwelling. To that place you must go. There bring your burnt offerings and sacrifices, your tithes and special gifts, what you have vowed to give, and your freewill offerings and the firstborn of your herds and flocks. There, in the presence of the Lord your God, you and your families shall eat and shall rejoice in everything you have put your hand to because the Lord your God has blessed you. And then two chapters later in Deuteronomy 14, instructions about tithing, and it concludes with this. Then you and your household shall eat there in the presence of the Lord your God and rejoice. That is, that which they brought for sacrifice, part of it was burned up, part of it was for the priest, but part of it was for the the people who brought it. And there, in the presence of God, they would eat as worship. In the church, this is also to be part of the practice. In Acts chapter 2, the early church, we read in verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Um, Verse 46, they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God. Some people want to spiritualize and say that that's communion, that that's the Lord's Supper. That may have been part of it, but part of the early church, part of their worship and their fellowship was eating together. And then we see in the book of Revelation that in heaven, the final significant event before eternity begins, before we sort of jump into the flow of eternity, the last significant event in a time, space, place is a supper is a meal, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Revelation 19, let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Then the angel said to me, (coughs) Write, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. The final event in human history is going to be a wedding, a marriage supper, a meal. And so, eating and worship were very much tied together. And I think, in the modern world, that simply hasn't happened. You know, we think of worship as you know, singing, praying, and you know, preaching and all that, but, but not eating. Uh, but in, in the way that God set it up, eating is very much a part of that. In the pagan world, such meals were also part of the regular practice. There were three parts to the meals, 
which would fall sort of in the format of a religious service. First of all, there would be the preparation, and that's where the participants would sort of gather certain prayers, certain rituals uh, would be said, would be done. Then there would be the sacrifice. The animal would be killed, the offering of various foods. And then the third part would be the feast itself. And that is where the worshippers would eat what had been sacrificed to the gods. The meat of the animal would be divided into three parts. One part would be burned. That would be the sacrifice proper. One part would be for the worshippers. And then one part would be for the god himself or herself. Because it was believed that in these meals, the gods themselves were present. And so there would be food put on the table for the gods. These occasions were not only religious, they were highly social. As I said earlier, temples were the restaurants of the ancient world. They had all that food, it had to be eaten, and so people would go in, not necessarily participate in the worship, but go in and eat the meat that was offered to the idols, to the gods. This is how I think it played out in Corinth. After Paul left Corinth, certain believers came to the conclusion, hey, an idol's nothing, the, the gods are false gods, they're not really gods at all, so why not go and get a good steak at your local temple and have a good meal? Uh, why, why not do that? Paul wrote them back and said, cut it out, stop doing that. So they write back to him, and they make four points, which he addresses here in chapter 8. First of all, they know that an idol is nothing. They all have knowledge about this. There's only one God. There can't be any real reality behind an idol. So, you know, going to a pagan temple and eating something offered to an idol, what's the big deal? No big deal at all. Secondly, they also have knowledge about food, that God really doesn't care what you eat. It's a matter of indifference to God. Um, since idols aren't real and since the food doesn't matter to God, it doesn't matter what you eat or where you eat. Thirdly, and this will come up when we get to chapter 10, they seem to have a magical view of communion and baptism, the two sacraments. That if you were baptized and if you took the Lord's Supper, nothing could hurt you. That is, you could, you could wallow in paganism and you wouldn't be affected by it. So if I've gone to church, if I've been baptized when I first became a Christian, and then I go to church and I have communion, then I can go to the pagan temple and I have sort of this invisible shield that will protect me by being, from being affected by pagan worship or pagan religion. I won't fall away from the faith. Paul will show this is not the case, and he uses the example of Israel. And lastly, the fourth issue that they write about, they're not sure this is any of Paul's business. They're not sure he has the authority to tell them anything about this matter. And there are two issues that come up in chapter 9. First of all, he wouldn't take any money from them. And this was a, an ongoing issue between the Corinthians and Paul. It really bothered them that Paul would not take their money. Part of it was cultural, I think, because in the Greek world, if you were a professional philosopher or teacher, you would take money. Who doesn't get paid? An amateur. Therefore, Paul's an amateur because he didn't take our money. We're not sure you have any right to say anything about this. The second thing, and we'll see this also in chapter 9, Paul said, you know, when I'm with the Jews, I'm a Jew. When I'm with the Gentiles, I'm a Gentile. 
They're like, you know, what's up with that? I mean, you can't, you can't even make up your mind. Who are you to tell us what we can and cannot do? Paul, in turn, responds to them. And today we begin to look at his response. The first thing that has to be dealt with is the attitude. The attitude that they have, that knowledge is the driving force in the Christian life. And Paul will say, no, it's not knowledge. It's love. Secondly, in chapter 9, he will talk about authority. Thirdly, how they misunderstand the nature of idols and idolatry. And lastly, about eating meat that comes from the marketplace. Today we will look at chapter 8. And Paul seeks to show that the basis of Christian ethics, Christian conduct, is love, not knowledge. And I think it's important for us to see this. Because when we get to chapter 10, Paul will say, cut it out. Don't do it. In chapter 8, he's like, well, you know, if it were me, I wouldn't do it. So he seems to leave the door open. And if you have a cynical view of scripture, you would say, well, Paul's contradicting himself. Not at all. Before he gets to the action, he wants to deal with the attitude. And the attitude needs to be one of love. And it isn't in the Corinthian church. And that's why they're doing these things. He has to correct the, ethic, the incorrect ethical basis of their argument and he has to deal with authority to reassert his authority. And then he can get back to chapter 10 and tell them, I told you before, I'm telling you now, stop doing this. Okay. See, for the Corinthians, how I live my life, my decisions, my conduct, my ethics are based primarily on knowledge. And my knowledge gives me freedom. Paul says that the basis is love. And love, in many ways, may restrict your freedom, because freedom isn't the highest good. Love for your brother and sister is. So, we will look at the issue, we will look at the Corinthian position, and then Paul's response in three parts. Let's read verses 1, 2, and 3 here of 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Now about food sacrifice to idols. We know that we all possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. The man who thinks he knows something does not yet know as he ought to know, but the man who loves God is known by God. The phrase at the beginning, now about, indicates to us that Paul is bringing up another issue that they mentioned in their letter. Um, as he did in chapter 7, Paul begins with their position. So the statement, we know that we all possess knowledge, this is not Paul speaking. This is what the Corinthians wrote in their letter. Just as in chapter 7 they said it is not good for a man to touch a woman, that's not Paul's position, that's what they wrote to him. So first, Corinthian position put on the table. We know that we all possess knowledge. By the way, it's interesting that they don't say that we all know but that we possess knowledge. I'm convinced that the knowledge the Corinthians are talking about is not a learned knowledge or an acquired knowledge. It is something given to you by the Spirit of God. Because you have the Spirit of God, when you become a Christian, you're like, oh yes, I know that. It's almost an intuitive thing. Because I'm a Christian, I know these things. Well, at least you should. The spiritual ones do. Those who aren't very spiritual, we saw that in chapter 2 and 3, uh, they don't know these things. And Paul says immediately, you're wrong. You're absolutely wrong. And he presents two contrasts. First of all, 
Knowledge puffs up. Love builds up. Knowledge leads to a false, or it can lead to a false view of reality. It gives you a false sense of things. Love, on the other hand, is not about you. It's about someone else. It's about the other person. The aim is the benefit of someone else and not yourself. As you know, I teach in university and, and I love to learn. I love to teach. Learning is wonderful. I think in many ways it's almost intoxicating. There, there's something quite wonderful about learning. And if we're not careful, it begins to distort our perception of reality as we learn more and more. That's why they say a little knowledge is a dangerous thing. Because you're just beginning to get a picture and you think that's what the whole world is and it's actually not. At this point, I must tell you a story which I've told you before, but it it bears repeating. Shelton and Karen uh, used to live with me and Lindsay, their son. And when Lindsay started uh, kindergarten, he went to uh, Westminster Academy, which is up in Eagle Rock. And to say that it was a difficult school would be an understatement. Uh, I remember that we went for open house at the end of his kindergarten year and they they wanted to show us what they learned. This is kindergarten, okay? I think Lindsay was five at the time. And Shelton's group, their assignment was to diagram words. Okay? Diagram words in, in kindergarten. And I, re- I remember this because it was so striking to me. Uh, and Lindsay's word was because. And he held it up. It was written on. He said, because. It's a two-syllable word. The first E is long. The second E is silent because the A-U forms a diphthong. Okay? This is kindergarten. Okay? So he was learning a lot, needless to say. Well, Karen told us a story that one day, because she would take him to school and then pick him up, they were riding home in the pickup, and Lindsay was saying, you know, I'm really learning a lot. And Karen goes, yes, you are. He goes, you know, I really know a lot. And Karen goes, yes, you do. And then that fateful statement. You know, I know more than you. <laughs> ah, there's the intoxication of learning, of knowledge. And I tell my students that sometimes universities are scary places to be because everyone thinks they know so much. Paul says knowledge puffs up. It is love that seeks to build up someone else. We will see, and Paul will come to the issue of love again in chapter 13. Again, it's the B in 12 and 14. Love is important. It is all important among God's people. It is not self-seeking. It always protects. It wants to build up. That's not the case with knowledge. The second contrast that he gives is that the man who thinks he knows something does not yet know as he ought to know. Look who knows so much. You think you know? You don't really know. But the contrast is, the man who loves God is known by God. That is to say, love is more important than knowledge. Love is that key, if you wish, to knowledge. Amazingly enough, when you think about it, knowledge is not only the key, it is not only the, it is not, only not the key, Uh, to Christian behavior. It is not even the key to Christian knowing. Knowing is not the key to knowing. Love is the key to knowing. And the person who loves God is known by God. 
I, I suspect that we would rather know more about God rather than love God more. And yet, Paul tells us that when we love God, then we are known by God. Paul begins here because the premise, the assumption that the, the Corinthians have held is completely wrong. But now he will go on to things he does agree with, but he has to correct it because of the false assumption. Verses 4, 5, and 6. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols. We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. Paul now turns around and he agrees with him. There is, in fact, only one true God. Only one genuine. He precedes all false gods. And all idols and false gods are, in fact, false. They are so-called gods whether people imagine they live here on earth or in, in heaven, it doesn't matter. They're not real. They're false. Because there's only one God. There's only one source of life, one source of all things, that's God. There's only one agency, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. So that we have done. So now, what do we do about meat that is offered to idols? If we know these, are, these idols are false gods, there's only one true God, then what do we do? Let's read the rest of the chapter now, verses 7 through 13. But not everyone knows this. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat such food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to an idol, and since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat, and no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your freedom does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone with a weak conscience sees you who have this knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't he be emboldened to eat what has been sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against your brothers in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause him to fall. We are to care for our brothers and sisters. Paul begins in verse number 7 with the word but, and it is a very strong adversative. Uh, he agreed with them in verses 4, 5, and 6, but, and he wants to qualify lest they think uh, that he's going along with them in their position. Love is to be the principle of our actions. It is what is to drive what we do. So he says, you know what? There's only one God. All the other gods are false gods. But not everybody knows this. You see, some of the Corinthians who have become believers used to worship false gods probably from the time that they were babies, infants. Maybe they did, their parents, their grandparents. This is very much a part of their life. 
And now they have come to faith in Christ. They believe that there's only one true God and that Jesus Christ is his son. But they just can't turn off that part of their life. They just can't, in their head, sort of turn a switch and say, oh, I know that it's false. Uh, I think intellectually they may know that it is false, that these are false gods. But emotionally, there are still very strong ties there. Emotionally and experientially, the idols still represent a reality to them. So that even though they know intellectually that the idol is not real, the idols represent something very real to them. They, cannot, they can't make a separation to say, well, this was offered to an idol, but an idol is not real, so it doesn't matter if I do it. Emotionally, they just cannot do that. And Paul tells us a reason why. They have weak consciences. Uh, that is to say, you know, the consciousness of their action with moral overtones is weak. That is, intellectually there, emotionally it's not there. And by the way, just parenthetically, should give us real insight into the nature of being a Christian, that it's not all about intellect. Uh, it very much involves the heart and the emotions. These people know there's only one God, but emotionally they feel like there are other gods as well. Verse number eight is an intriguing verse, at least to me, because I wonder if this is really what Paul is saying or if this is what the Corinthians have said in their letter. Because if you remember back in chapter six, uh, he said, you know, that they had said something about food, you know, food for the stomach, a stomach for food, but God will destroy them both. So it doesn't really matter what you eat. Um, I, I think that Paul is, is not necessarily agreeing with them here. He's simply repeating their position that that food is really a, of no consequence to God. Because if that's true, why would he say what he says in chapter 10? Don't eat meat that has been offered to idols. So we come to verse 9. Be careful. Okay? You walk around saying, hey, food's no big deal. doesn't matter what you eat. God doesn't care what you eat. Paul says, you better be careful. Because you think you have the freedom to do what you want, and this freedom is causing other people to stumble. By the way, the word freedom that we find in verse number 9 is the same word we found in chapter 6, the word permissible. All things are permissible for me. Remember, the Corinthians were saying, we have the freedom, this is permissible for us. Um, Paul says the exercise of your freedom, the NIV is somewhat weak here because the word is actually authority. They do not simply believe that they have the freedom to do this. They have the authority. It's permitted. It is lawful. We get to do this. And Paul says, listen, you're throwing around your authority and you're causing somebody else to sin. For Paul, their knowledge led or created a stumbling block for others. For him, love was to be the foundation. I need to be willing to give up my right, my authority for the sake of someone else. So verse number 10, Paul makes a plea for the weak. Here we learn three things about the Corinthian situation. First of all, the knowledge that they've been talking about is the knowledge that it's okay to eat in the temple. Secondly, those in the know, K-N-O-W, were encouraging those who, eh, I just don't know if I would do that. 
they were sort of bringing these people either, you know, directly or indirectly by their example and causing them to go to temples. And thirdly, the problem is not that these people with weak consciences are offended. It is that they are doing something that violates their conscience. I think because of the King James and and, and the word offend here, many people have had sort of a strange idea about this chapter. uh, That don't ever do anything that offends someone. Well, you know what? If you take that principle as the guiding principle of your life, you're not going to leave the house. Okay? Because you can't hardly turn around without offending someone. Okay? Um, You can't. Because people have different tastes, different styles. They think certain things are important, other things aren't important. Paul's not talking about personal taste here. What he's talking about is somebody doing something that violates their conscience. I I don't think I should do that. I don't think I should do that. Oh, but wait, Alicia does that, so it must be okay. I don't think I should, but I'm going to because she does. That's what Paul's talking about here. And it isn't simply a case of observing her. That may be part of it. I think it's much more proactive than that. They're like, come on, brother, let's, you know, well, that was a great sermon today. Hey, let's go over to the temple and get a good steak. And people who were, people were doing things that actually violated their consciences. They should not have done it because to them, that's where they used to go to church. That's where they used to worship false gods. That's where they used to eat in the presence of the gods. And now, it's okay to do it? For many of them, it wasn't okay. And those for whom it wasn't a big deal should have been more considerate. They should have had love for those for whom it was a big deal. In verse number 11 Uh, Well, actually, verse 10 and 11, the language here is very powerful. Um, Paul's saying you destroy someone when you cause them to do something against their conscience. Knowledge puffs up, love builds up. You're not building up people, you're tearing them down. Because you know so much, you're in the know, you have so much knowledge. You destroy them. And, and how do you destroy them? And Well, first of all, who do you destroy? I think this is amazing. You destroy someone for whom Christ died. Christ died on the cross for this person, to save this person, and you are trying to destroy this person by your actions. And, oh, Paul, how am I destroying them? Well, first of all, their conscience is wounded, And secondly, they return to their old ways. I have no doubt that there were some Corinthian believers who couldn't go to the temple, the pagan temple. They ended up going to the temples with with the stronger brothers. And you know what? They never came back to church. They stayed in the old ways. Paul says, you've destroyed someone for whom Christ died. This person who is a brother, this person for whom Christ died, this person is your brother and sister, not because of knowledge, but because of love. And your love 
should be the basis of your actions, not your knowledge. And Paul says, listen, if I recognize that eating meat will cause somebody to fall back into their old ways, I'll never eat meat again. Why? Because he knows it will cause them to stumble? No, because he loves them. Because he loves them. Let's wrap this up, and the Lord willing, well, John will be speaking next week, and then the following week we'll come back to this in uh, chapter 9. But the issue in this section, I just want to repeat, is not offending as such. Okay? Okay, please understand that. That uh, I can remember some years ago, back at the church I attended when I was in Bible school, uh, one Sunday, I have, and I don't know why, for the life of me, I've tried to think, I came to church without wearing a tie. I wasn't wearing a tie. And I have to tell you, many people were offended that I came to church without a tie. Okay? That's not what Paul's talking about here. Okay? What he's talking about is causing someone to imitate your behavior, behavior that's not necessarily wrong. But for that person, it's wrong. And therefore, you have destroyed that person. And it's not a peripheral issue. It's not a matter of taste. This is a central issue. This is about someone returning to a life of paganism out of which they have been saved. The driving force in my, of my actions, the basis of my actions, should be love. And I find it fascinating that in chapter 10, Paul will take a much different approach. He'll just say, hey, stop this. This is wrong. But before he deals with the action, he wants to deal with the attitude. And that's what he does in this particular chapter. I wonder if the Corinthians, when they first heard this letter, if they said, well, well Paul, why didn't you just tell us to stop? You know, why take two chapters to tell us we shouldn't do this? You told us that before. Why did you do all this? Because the action is almost secondary. The motivation behind it is primary. Their love is what is lacking. And that's what needs to be corrected. It's interesting that when he gets to chapter 10, he will again deal with the issue of causing someone to sin and won't limit it simply to the church, but to unbelievers as well. Because you know what? Some unbelievers, they might wonder, you know, I wonder if I should be going to temple. I wonder if I should be worshiping this false god. And then if they see a Christian there, I'm like, well, he's there. I guess it's okay. Paul will say, do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God. We are to be so concerned about our actions, not in terms of taste. Oh, I wonder if they'll be offended. No, but whether or not I'm doing something that for someone else can be devastating. I think there are a number of uh, illustrations I could use. I'll, I'll just pick a couple. One would be something like drinking alcohol, which is not forbidden by Scripture. But you know what? Some people can't drink alcohol. They cannot. It is an addiction for them, and one drink sort of begins a, a deadly cycle. And so if you're with someone who cannot drink alcohol, Would you offer this person a drink? Of course not. 
out of love and affection for this person, you say, I know there's nothing wrong with me drinking this. I don't have a problem with this. But I recognize that for you it is something you can't do. So I'm not going to do it in front of you. I'm not going to offer you a drink. I'm not going to do it because I don't want to destroy you in any way. Or the picture that came to mind for me is that of an adult with a child. You know how sometimes with children you can make scary faces and they get all scared and start crying and everything. You're like, hey, it's me. See, it's me. Make a face. It's me. I mean, and intellectually they know it's you, but it still freaks them out. So what are you going to do? Are you going to keep doing that until they get it, that it's you? Come on, you ought to know that by now. Come on, be a man. No. You know it scares the child. You don't do it. In the same way, if you know that something you do, which is perfectly fine, there's nothing wrong with it, for you might not be perfectly fine for someone else, then you don't do it. Paul says, I'll never eat meat again if it causes someone to sin. We need to be very, very, very conscious of our actions that it doesn't cause someone else to stumble. Because if it does, then we have destroyed someone for whom Christ died. And as Paul says, we've not only sinned against our brother, we have sinned against Christ. So, Let's deal with the attitude first. We'll deal with the action later. Let's pray together. Our Father, we live in a time in which we are surrounded by information. As we probably know more than humanity has ever known, we have access to all types of sources of knowledge. It's very easy to think that knowledge is the most important thing, that it is what is to direct our actions. But in the kingdom, love is the highest virtue. Our actions are to be be driven by love. Our love for our brothers and sisters, those for whom Christ died, even for those outside the church. That we would be careful. We would think about the things we do. Things that may be perfectly fine for us, but not for others. And that out of genuine love and affection for them, we will not do it. We will not cause them to stumble. May we in the days to come think about these things and and how we should put this into practice in our lives. We ask for strength for the coming week. We don't know what the week has for us, but you do. You were already there. Already arranged the circumstances of our lives. We ask for grace and for strength. And for faith. Now as we leave this place, may your spirit go with us.
May we be lights in a world of darkness. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.